At Alma, we know the connection between you and your therapist matters. But if you're already feeling stressed and burnt out, the idea of trying to find a therapist you really connect with can be overwhelming. That's why Alma's focused on helping you find the right therapist for you. When you browse their online directory, you can filter by the qualities that are most important to you. Then, book free 15-minute consultations with any therapist you're interested in seeing. And because 95% of therapists at Alma accept insurance, you can find care that's affordable to you want to talk to someone, but not just anyone. Alma is there to help you find the right fit. Visit helloalma.com slash therapy30 to schedule a free consultation today. That's helloalma.com slash therapy30. C13 Originals. After graduation, Brett returns to Sherman Oaks. And for the next six months, he lives with his mother, Dale, in the house with the pool on Valley Vista Boulevard. L.A. is a lull in his action, a becalmed and restful interlude during which he finishes his follow-up to Lesson Zero, The Rules of Attraction. And then, Rules is done, and so is the interlude. And it's on to the land of tall buildings. He bought a condo in the East Village, and the end of the 1980s, wired and ticking on cocaine and adrenaline and go, go, go. On to as well, the novel that will define both the city and the decade, the novel that is his destiny. Metropolitan Madness, here we come. I'm Lily Alec, and this is Once Upon a Time at Bennington College. In early spring of 87, Brett moves into the American Felt Building on East 13th. Most of his non-writing hours are spent with recent Bennington grads. And though he is one himself, these aren't really his peers. Writer Jay McInerney and I discuss. And a reminder, listeners, plus an apology. My interview with Jay was conducted at a popular restaurant during lunch hour. The audio is not what you'd call pristine. And then, were, you know, and then he had this group of people he went to school with that you know he must have felt comfortable with. Although at the same time he was he was this famous novelist now, yeah. and, and they were all struggling to do whatever the hell that you know. Yeah. Well, most of them to write a book, you know. Right, of course. Which must have created some interesting dynamics. I can you know? only imagine, you know. Okay, so there's a person who entered Brett's life a few years back, and she's part of both the old Bennington crowd and the new crowd he's moving into. Pigeon O'Brien. Pigeon is best known for, in 2007, tipping off the National Enquirer to the affair between her pal, Riel Hunter, one-time squeeze of Jay McInerney, and presidential hopeful, John Edwards, thus effectively ending Edwards' campaign and his marriage. But that's decades down the line, in the 21st century, and we're still very much in the 20th. Pigeon came to New York from St. Louis in 1984 to go to college. She ended up going out instead, mostly to Area, the downtown club where Jay had his Bright Lights Big City book party, the one attended by, you might recall, Sting, Boy George, and Norman Mailer. Pigeon missed those three, but she did have a celebrity signing. Tom Cruise and Mimi Rogers were there, and I remember keeping sneaking glances at Tom Cruise. I'm an 18-year-old Midwesterner, right? I remember just being like, wow. It was wow. He was chatting and making the scene. I remember that he was wearing a shirt with no jacket. 
later I heard that Tom was attached to Bright Lights Big City, but they were working on the script because he insisted on no drug content. For Bright Lights Big City. <laughs> yeah, so good luck with that. It is drug content. And then drinking law started getting enforced. All of a sudden, area, Pigeon's go-to, was a no-go. They cracked down on IDs. Everywhere did. I believe because of Drew Barrymore. Drew Barrymore and her mother were going out in those days. And uh, one night, I don't know why, I went to Limelight. Limelight was not the most lawful place in the whole world. So I was able to go to it, which ironically, I met Drew Barrymore there, you know, who was nine years old. It's also where Pigeon met Brad, who came to visit Ian Gitler, class of 84, a Limelight employee and already a friend of Pigeon's. Brett was this darling college kid. He just had such an open affect and just, you know, just he was so lovable and so, so sweet. And yeah, had a big, big sad heart. And then something shifts and Brett starts to drift away from the Bennington crowd. Brett. There was Jay's world and then there was my world. And I was more often in Jay's world than he was in mine. I was still with a bunch of 20-somethings who graduated from Bennington who were not particularly fabulous or famous. And there really was no reason to come into my crowd when he was in the crowd that everyone wanted to be a part of. That's how Jay remembers it, too. He sort of folded into my group, uh, Morgan Entrican, Errol McDonald, and Gary Fiskajon. Morgan Entrican, Errol McDonald, Gary Fiskajon, all young, all hip, all handsome, all editors, and all changing the face of publishing. Morgan at Atlantic Monthly Press, Errol at Random House, and Gary, first at Random House, where he started the hugely successful Vintage Contemporaries, a line of trade paperbacks with covers that look like rock albums, and now at Atlantic Monthly Press with Morgan. And this group truly is a group, meaning the guys in it actually do spend time together, as opposed to the literary Brat Pack, which is made up of Jay, Brett, and Slays of New York writer Tama Janowitz, and which is flat out made up, a creation of the media. Jay. Tama wasn't, that was a bit of an artificial yeah, of association. Um, and I thought she was pretty cool, but, but, but we didn't really hang out with her. Whereas I really did hang out a lot with Brett. With Brett and others. Pigeon O'Brien on the others. This, by the way, is the third velvet rope Brett is getting us past. New York, 1980s Cafe Society. The VIP section of the VIP section. Andy Warhol, always around. Boy George was around. Marilyn, who was Boy George's sidekick, was around all the time. Fellini, Sandra Rhodes, Malcolm McLaren, Laurie Anderson, Lou Reed, Spalding Gray, Francesco Clementi, Keith Haring, um, Kenny Scharf, Betsy Johnson. Brett was friends with a young California novelist named Mark Lindquist. And Mark Lindquist then had a girlfriend named, who was Molly Ringwald. He was friends with Sarah Jessica Parker and Robert Downey when they lived together, which talk about ancient history. <laughs> so those were his buds. So he kind of brought that gang to the table. And Sarah Jessica was known in New York. Her brother had a theater troupe, Naked Angels. Through Naked Angels was John Kennedy Jr. And Christina, his girlfriend, she was a blue blood and she was great. Carolyn Kennedy, Ed Schlossberg, because of, you know, because of that. Duran Duran was around. And John Taylor was always around. Nick Rhodes, not so much. He married a department store heiress from the Midwest. You know, they, I think they went out in London, but they didn't spend so much time going out in New York. 
Oh my God. So went to this party at Brett's house and um, into the party comes Jean-Michel Basquiat. And he's got this, the blue can of caviar that was up displayed at Dean and DeLuca. And he brings it in and he's like, hey, and Brett's like, oh, oh, does anybody need to get a can opener? And he's kind of looking at me like, holy fucking shit. Jean-Michel Basquiat brought the $5,000 can of caviar to this party. Like, wow. And Michael J. Fox, who rushes in where Tom Cruise feared to tread. Jay. Michael hung around us while we were shooting Bright Lights Big City. My, he was an animal at that time. We used to stay out till three or four in the morning. I don't know how he got to set by six, which he had to do. But mostly, it's Brett and Jay, Jay and Brett, the toxic twins. Jay. In the press, we were rivals or we were like pals. We were the toxic twins. By the press, Jay really means the tabloids, specifically the New York tabloids. Even more specifically, the New York Post. It's hard to understand now how much power and influence this publication wielded. Pigeon. New York Post had page six, which was just all the tabloid trash that you needed. I mean, everybody in New York was reading this on the subway and, you know, every morning, this was something that people went right to. So the figures of page six were well known to New Yorkers. So appearing in page six made you not famous, but infamous. Infamous, though, is the famous of the future, as we know, listeners, since the future is where we live. Donald Trump. He was inserting himself at the time into the tabloids and stuff. And you knew he was inserting himself into the tabloids because it would say that Donald Trump is, you know, the best sex I've ever had. People don't talk like that. So it was completely fake from the get-go. Jay's been a page six regular since Bright Lights. Soon Brett's one, too. Things we knew about one another, his buds and his hanging out sort of so that you might tell somebody in the ladies' room, you know, we're in the papers. So our small world was also a world that was read by all of New York and opined about by all of New York. The gossip among Pigeon set of friends is suddenly the gossip of the entire city, which happens to be the cultural capital of the country, which happens to be the most powerful in the world. And in the 80s, gossip columns aren't confined to newspapers. Here's Brad Gooch, a poet, a novelist, and, briefly, model for Wilhelmina. They had gossip columns in those days, and the names were in dark print. So social life was like gossip columns coming to life a little bit, right? So these names would meet each other, and you, you know, already knew about each other, like you didn't have to Google each other first because you'd already read about each other in these different publications. But the the noise level was so high and the alcohol drug intake obviously was so high that there wasn't three dimensional content <laughs> to our social life, right? It was it was visual and it was names and words. And parties was always part of that. I mean they had that kind of hyper kind of speed to them and surfacey sorts of exchanges and it was very exciting like arranged friendships that had to do with like how bold was the bold type in your face the experience of becoming a bold-faced name is so jarring a one for brad that he splits in two here he is reading from his nonfiction collection white 
I skimmed articles about Brett Easton Ellis. I saw his picture in newspapers and magazines. I read that he'd been seen at certain art openings and nightclubs with certain young movie stars of the moment. Robert Downey Jr., Judd Nelson, Nick Cage, and at certain trendy restaurants with the literary Brat Pack cohort, Jay McInerney. And sometimes I might have been there, paparazzi pics proved I was, and other times I couldn't be sure. My author's photo might have been printed next to a story about a gallery opening or a midtime movie premiere, but that didn't mean I was there. Sometimes just an RSVP was proof of my presence at an event, whether I'd attended it or not. I often saw my name embedded in lists that confirmed I'd been somewhere when I knew, in fact, I hadn't. In a sense, there were now two Bretts, the private and the public. And 1987 was the year I realized they coexisted. In other words, Brett's a person, but now he's a non-person as well. That's what a celebrity is, what a star is, a thing. Thingness, I suspect, holds a certain appeal for Brett. To no longer have to be a human, anxiety-riddled and funk-ridden. To no longer have to care or think or feel. To exist purely in the aesthetic realm, as a cool and neutral object, would be an enormous relief. Alive, but not quite. Now that's living. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com recommend today. Hi, this is Amy Poehler, here to tell you about a new improvised show from Paper Kite Podcasts. The team that brought you Say More with Dr. Sheila. Check out our new parody podcast, Women Talking About Murder. It's a show about women talking about murder every episode features special guests twists turns and the mystery of a missing co-host available on the odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts the novel that brett began outlining in the fall of 86 as he was wrapping up the rules of attraction is his sole focus in the spring of 87. Brett reads from White. That American Psycho was initially far more straightforward and earnest, with the lonely young yuppie Patrick Bateman starring in a realistic novel with no overt violence or pornography, a young man lost on Wall Street, seduced and trapped by the greed of an era. This book would have completed a kind of trilogy detailing youthful 80s Reagan-era excess that had begun with Less Than Zero, been continued by the rules of attraction, and would have ended with Bateman at the end of the decade. Passive, older, wiser, no longer with his fiancée, disillusioned as he left the company he'd worked at. But this original idea for the novel changed in a flash. Brett discusses with me the who and where of The Flash. It was Larry David's brother, Barry, was my introduction to Wall Street. Larry has a brother named Barry? This seems improbable, and I say so to Brett. Or maybe the father's name was Barry, 
but it was Larry David's brother, and I forgot what firm he worked with, and he was the one who I would go out with with all the guys and hang out at Harry's and stuff like that. Larry, Barry, and now Harry. Harry is not Larry's brother or father. Harry's is a steakhouse in the financial district. There's one dinner at Harry's in particular. Larry David's brother and his trader confreres chest-thumping about the restaurant reservations they're scoring, the designer threads they're sporting, the workout and tanning regimens they're undergoing. Brett from White. The competition between these guys was overwhelming. The one-upmanship and bragging bordered at times on the threatening. I suddenly decided that Patrick Bateman would be a serial killer. A yuppie serial killer, which is what Brett looks like. Well, not the serial killer part, but the yuppie part for sure. Pigeon O'Brien. He was the first person my age that I knew who looked and thought like a businessman. He was wearing suits. He was wearing business and nanny suits and comporting himself like a businessman. You knew that he was going to have phone meetings through the day, that he would write for a while, that he was going to have a phone meeting. And like, you know, Brett belonged to a businessman world. And that was not a gay person world. That was not a gay boy at the time world. No, but it is the world of his father, Bob Ellis. Here's Ian Gitler with an alternate take on Bob. People have a lot of critical ideas about him, and I believe everything that Brett has sort of woed or complained about. But this was a formidable man. This was a man who had sold the U.S. Steel Building at least two times, and in the process of doing that, he was actually the architect of a whole system for handling development finance that completely changed how people did business in that industry. When you look at his ability to rewrite the rules of an entire industry, you have to think that some of Brett's innate abilities are that success DNA that seems to come from parents who were able to get it done, regardless of whether or not they taught you how to do it yourself. And I mean, his grandfather founded the town of Elko, Nevada and built a casino. That couldn't have been easy. So I was going to avoid the rabbit hole that is Brett's paternal grandfather, Robert Caldwell Ellis, nicknamed Red. We crawl in. We might not crawl out again. Ian brought him up, though, so we'll just pop our heads down the hole. Take a peek. This from Red's obituary, which ran in the Elko Daily in 1991. Quote, In his nearly 50 years of living in Elko, Red Ellis made his mark owning and operating the legendary commercial hotel. Ellis and his business partner purchased the Mayer Hotel and built the Stockman's Hotel in its place in 1943. Three years later, Ellis bought the commercial hotel and ranch in. These casinos thrived under Ellis's management as he continued to bring in big-name entertainers such as Burl Ives. He was also a visionary, preparing Elko's expansion on a desolate 600-acre tract of land. Today, the property is home to the Red Lion Inn and Casino, the Gold Country Inn and Casino, and the East End Mall. What is said between the lines in the Elko Daily is said directly in a 2004 issue of Ski Magazine. Journalist Tracy Ross, reviewing Red's Ranch in Lamoille, Nevada, writes, quote, Built by Mimi Ellis Hogan, daughter of alleged mafioso, Red Ellis. Red sounds like a pioneer, a great westerner, a builder of cities, and possibly a 
a very shady operator. He sounds like Noah Cross in Chinatown, basically. And if Red Alice is Noah Cross, then Bob Ellis is Frank Booth in David Lynch's modern-day fairy tale that is also the scariest horror movie you ever saw, Blue Velvet. Frank Booth, played by Dennis Hopper, is the edibly fixated, amyl nitrate-huffing macho man lunatic in a sicko version of the father-son relationship with college boy Jeffrey Beaumont, played by Kyle MacLachlan. In the film's most memorable scene, Jeffrey must watch Frank having sex while hiding in a closet. Recent college boy Brett, in a sicko version of the father-son relationship with his actual father, well, perhaps an active version of this scene in real life. Amy Herskovitz, Class of 85, said this about Bob Ellis when I interviewed her for my Esquire oral history. Quote, Brett's dad was violently shaming of Brett. There was this time when a woman, young, our age, gave Brett's dad head under the table at a club in front of Brett. It was so wrong. It was bad for Brett, bad for Brett's dad, bad for the girl. Quite a claim. I, of course, ran it by Brett. That could be true. I don't remember it, but it, could, it sounds like it could have happened. I can't imagine my father hooking up with, quite honestly, anybody. He might have tried, but who knows? Maybe Amy's right about this. Maybe her memory is better than mine. I'm not going to say that she's wrong about that. But then Brett would say Amy's wrong. Months after the piece came out, I was at dinner with Brett, like a social dinner with other people, when he suddenly turned to me and said, apropos nothing, that that story wasn't true. Then there was a blur of words and phrases I half caught. My father, alcoholic, diabetic, penile implant, Mayo Clinic, none of which should have surprised me. In Lunar Park, a novel but with a protagonist named Brett Easton Ellis, there's a scene where Brett's father, Bob Ellis, dies unexpectedly, as he would in life. Quote, In the end, I was left with two Petite Philippe watches and a box full of oversized Armani suits. When I brought some of the Armani suits to a tailor to be altered, I was revolted to discover that most of the inseams in the crotch of the trousers were stained with blood, which we later found out was the result of a botched penile implant he underwent in Minneapolis. My father, in the last years, due to the toxic mix of diabetes and alcoholism, had become impotent. So the blowjob probably never occurred, I'm going to go with probably rather than definitely because I questioned Amy closely when she told me the story, questioned her again during Esquire's fact-checking process, and she stood by it. So who knows? In any event, Amy thought it occurred, and Brett, at least initially, thought it might have occurred, which maybe tells you all you need to know about Bob Ellis. Receiving sexual favors from a girl your son's age, a friend of your son's, in front of that son who's gay but hasn't yet declared himself to you. Well, this isn't a normal bad daddy. This isn't even an abnormally bad daddy. This is an expressionistically bad daddy. This is, as I said, Frank Booth. Something to keep in mind. This incident goes down, slash doesn't go down, while Brett is writing American Psycho, the principal character of which, Patrick Bateman, is, Brett will later say, both in interviews and in Lunar Park, based on Bob Ellis. Something else to keep in mind, this incident goes down slash doesn't go down at Nell's, the hot new nightclub, 
which opened in late 1986. Pigeon O'Brien. Downtown started to get shunned. People were getting AIDS, and it was seen as a thing that gay men get, and you can get it from being around gay men. And of course, gay men were a pillar of the club scene. So all these downtown clubs were closing, and they weren't cool to go to anymore. Nils was more uptown and attracted a more uptown clientele. Michael Musto, who, during this period, has a weekly culture and gossip column in the Village Voice, a Dolce Musto, on Nels. When Nels came in, I felt it was ushering in more of an uptight sensibility, and I I would rail against it in my column. Area was one of my all-time favorite clubs, and the owners were artistic people who didn't even care if they made money. They were just in it from an artistic bent. And then along comes Nels, where it's very uppity and, you know... The doorman didn't even recognize Cher and turned her away. (laughs) That put them on the map. That's also making a statement. Turning away Cher, whose status in the gay world is non-parel. Celebrities, though, are very much welcome at Nels. Ian Gittler. At Nels, the people viewing was just incredibly insane. Once Don Johnson was in the first booth at like the height of Miami Vice. And the traffic around that banquette was like eight deep the whole night. And we people were just literally taking their turn walking past just to get a view of the sky. Literally, light lands on certain people a different way. Don Johnson, he just was like sort of grinning sitting in this. He had his shirt open to his waist, like the tan loose 80s jacket, and just looked so incredible. Don Johnson the former stepfather of Dominic Gross, who was the inspiration for Weston Zero's Julian. Okay, Don wasn't exactly Dominic's stepfather, but while Dominic was dating Nicolette Sheridan, then Nicolette Savalas, Don was dating Nicolette's mother, Sally. One night, Brett's sitting at a table at Nell's with Pigeon O'Brien when he spots Rick Rubin, co-founder of Def Jam Records and the music supervisor for Weston Zero the movie, at a corner booth. Pigeon. Brett said, will you do something? And I was like, what? And he said, I always saw that movie ending with a Beach Boys song. Can you go tell him? Brett was, you know, he didn't want it to come from him. So I went over and I tapped him on the shoulder and I said, hey, so listen, I'm a friend of Brett Easton Ellis. He wants you to know that he wants it to end with a Beach Boys song. And like, that's what he wrote it. That's that's what the ending was supposed to be. And Rick Rubin was like, okay, whatever. And I always wonder what would have happened, how that movie would be if Rick Rubin had listened to Brett. I always think of Less Than Zero ending with, wouldn't it be nice? I always think of, wouldn't it be nice? Less Than Zero, which is released that fall, fall of 87, has a killer soundtrack, no matter that the Beach Boys aren't on it. Its first single, The Bangles' cover of Paul Simon's Hazy Shade of Winter, makes it to number two on the Billboard charts. But nothing can save the movie. Not even the cast, full of non-literary Brad Packers, i.e. real Brad Packers, Andrew McCarthy, Jamie Kurtz, Robert Downey Jr., plus an unknown Brad Pitt as an extra at Blair's Christmas party. There isn't one scene or line of dialogue from the book in it. Footnote, Andrew McCarthy, who plays Clay, the fictional Brad, had, earlier in 87, scored a sleeper hit with the romantic comedy Mannequin about a department store window dresser who falls in love with a life-size dummy possessed by the spirit of an ancient Egyptian woman. Yes, that's actually the plot, and which was produced by, among others, John Foreman, father of Julie, the basis for Blair. 
also released in the fall of 87, The Rules of Attraction. Here's editor Jerry Howard, who buys the paperback rights for it as he bought them for less than zero. I read Rules of Attraction, and I thought, yeah, it's, a, it's less than zero, but in an Eastern college. I liked it. You know, it didn't have the kick of revelation, obviously, that uh, less than zero had, but it was a very shrewd and convincing take on campus culture at that time. Certainly didn't do anything like the business that less than zero did. Rules is Brett's Bennington novel, the one he sets in 1985, but experienced in 1983, and is about his maybe romance, more likely non-romance, with classmate Bill Holmes, Sean Bateman in the book. Incidentally, Sean Bateman is a younger brother of Patrick Bateman, who first appears in Rules, not American Psycho. And it's to Phil that Rules is dedicated. Pigeon. I remember Amy saying to Brett, I can't believe you dedicated it to Phil. So I didn't realize that that character was a real person. So that was mind-bending for me. And also to realize how much writers, fiction writers, wrote that was true. Joe Eisenstadt, class of 85, is a character in Rules. She's Alex, quote, that nice girl from Rockaway. Well, that nice girl from Rockaway had, the year before, finished From Rockaway, the book she started at Bennington Summer Workshop in 1984, the one inspired by the story Donna told about tornadoes causing ear bleeds. Jill shows the manuscript to Brett. Brett, he's so generous. Brett gave my novel to Bob Asahina and Simon and & Schuster. And Bob Asahina makes an offer. Brett also gives the manuscript to his former Bennington teacher and mentor, Joe McGinnis, who gives it to Jane Clo Nesbitt's Cynthia Canal, who gives it to Knopf's Bob Gottlieb, who makes an offer four times as big as Asahina's. A quick update on Joe McGinnis. Joe, in 1987, is still riding high from 1983's Fatal Vision, a true crime bestseller. Only he's about to come crashing down to earth. The subject of Fatal Vision, Jeffrey McDonald, now a convicted murderer, sues Joe for breach of contract, alleging that Joe betrayed him by professing belief in his innocence, thereby gaining access to him and his defense team, and then writing a book that portrays him as guilty. The suit ends in a mistrial, but it's reputation damaging. The judge likening McGinnis to a, quote, con man and, quote, thief in the night. It gets worse. Joe, a famous nonfiction writer, will become the stooge in one of the most famous nonfiction works of all time, Janet Malcolm's The Journalist and the Murderer, which is published in two parts in The New Yorker in 1989, and which opens with the deathless line, quote, every journalist who is not too stupid or too full of himself to notice what is going on knows that what he does is morally indefensible. In the mid to late 80s, though, Joe is a powerful advocate to have, as is Brett. Rules and From Rockaway are published almost simultaneously, and Brett and Jill appear on the Today Show together. Jill. We both bought new shoes, which was pretty funny because you don't see your shoes at all. And even though there's no such thing as the literary Brat Pack, Jill somehow joins it. But whether this association helps her or hurts her isn't clear. Of course, it must have helped to get all that attention and readership. But it was difficult in a way at the time because we got a lot of abuse 
some people, even though we were sort of fed it on one hand and abused on the other. Also, being like one of the few women in that, like me and Tama Janowitz, I think were treated differently than the men. You know, like they styled us and they made us put on all these clothes. I just remember people being sort of frustrated that I didn't know how to be a model, basically. And almost as soon as Jill's in the literary brat pack, she's out. I was falling in love. And then I wanted to just take that money I'd earned in travel and stuff. And Brett and Jay were just going out every night, you know, doing lots of drugs. Which doesn't sound conducive to churning out those pages. Yet social life was part of the writerly life in New York in the 1980s. The literary lions and lionesses tended to be party animals. Brad Gooch. The writers who we think of in connection with that period were often the social ones. Brad Ellis, Jay McInerney, Candace Bushnell writers. I mean, they kind of took writing and mixed it with a sort of giddy social life. And, and also in that period, then fiction was a close cousin of journalism. So the writers we were reading were doing a kind of deep journalism and they were reporting on what was going on. So they needed to go out for their work. As Jay McInerney testifies. Bright Lights, in my mind, is set in like 1980 or 1981 at the latest. And yet, when it was published in 1984, it was considered very new. And it would be impossible now to have a sort of three-year lag in digesting your experience, shaping it, writing it, and still delivering cultural news. Now it would be in social media, you know, like instantly. And, I, you know, I, the culture moves much faster. But it, it was possible to deliver cultural news as a novelist then. You want to deliver cultural news? You've got to go out and collect it first. So the party is Jay's medium, just as the novel is Jay's medium. The same is true of Brett. The party boy identity for Brett, though, is never unidimensional. He's always both inside the role and outside. Some of the partying is fun, sure. Cocaine can be a blast. So can staying out all night and dirty lost weekends. But more of it, I'm betting, is punishing, yet necessary, useful degradation, indulgence rather than self-indulgence. It's his way of pushing himself to extremes and thus truly experiencing his time and place, filling himself with its spirit. Of pushing himself, too, from prose to poetry. Not literally, of course, he writes prose. By poetry, I mean transcendence, exaltation, art. Now, I want you to listen to Brad Gooch talk about what it's like after the party, or the dinner, or the happening, or the event, is over. We would go back to Brett's soothing white apartment. Soothing, because, you know, it was like Japanese minimal. I love being there. Cleaning up consisted of making everything invisible. We would do cocaine, and there was like a, this home entertainment unit, which was Brett. So he was part DJ which he would be playing music that he liked, right? Specific pieces, and then you go to another specific piece. Um, and he also had on the TV, giant TV, with the remote, and he would go from interesting program to interesting program, and 
Then he would get out from under the sink where he, he kept all the magazines that had pieces about him. He would kind of run through, like, look at this piece about me from Japan, or look at this piece about me in this L.A. magazine. So you would see all this coverage, you know, and also books that he was reading, and there'd be a pile of them, and you could talk about them. So it was really like curating a whole multimedia experience. I mean, we can imagine in some made-up literary past, writers getting together and talking about the books they had been reading, right? That happened, you know, but it was one sliver. But, you know, but it was also, you know, jump-cutting to music and to magazines and to TV and um, to drugs and gossip. So it was a fast-moving channel shuffler. I'm struck by this description of Brett in his apartment late at night. So struck that after Brad gives it to me, and after our interview is done, I call him on the phone and make him talk about it with me some more. And because I'm overexcited, I occasionally interrupt. Unforgivable, I know, listeners, but you're just going to have to forgive me. Brett's kind of encyclopedic attitude towards all this, like, flippy stuff going on every day in the culture was was him, and no one was doing it. I mean, he might have, you know, he could have been an, the editor-in-chief of any magazine or, you know, or a Hollywood studio or something, because he really yeah. had this incredible curatorial and, you know, slightly, I, I don't know, voracious, I guess, yeah. um, impulse to all that stuff. So that was yeah. either the most superficial or the most compelling and serious <laughs> part of him. My vote is for most compelling and serious. To me, this story reveals a fundamental truth about Brett. Or rather, fundamental truths, plural. There are three of them by my count. Truth number one, Brett's essential aloneness. He's known for appearing anywhere and everywhere, giving and going to parties. But if you watch him closely, you'll notice that the direction he's moving in is always away. Away from human contact, away from human experience, towards solitude and asceticism. Truth number two, Brett's persona, his public self, the second of the two Bretts, the Brett who appears in newspapers and magazines and other media, is something he's curious about, yet detached from. It interests him, perhaps even fascinates him, but in an abstract way. Egomania without ego. Truth number three, Brett's antenna, which you can see, can actually see, even if it's technically invisible, extending itself in this scene, pulsing, tuning in to various frequencies. It's the best since Andy Warhol's. Fitting because the new Andy Warhol is, in a way, what he's become. Again, Brad Gooch. The whole thing was at that point, books had book parties, and they had begun to realize that a New York Times review by an important author praising your work might not sell any copies. So the idea occurred, maybe Liz Smith can sell copies or Michael Musto can sell copies. So at least at that moment, the business model was these kinds of parties. And I had one of those kinds of parties. Andre Bellage was a friend of mine, you know, agreed to throw it. And so, and there was a dinner before and then all these people came. Um, 
and was Rod Stewart there? Um, I think. And Brett Ellis appeared at that, kind of scrunched into the bar, having your picture taken with him or having his name at your party or all that meant that your publisher could relax because he was that kind of Andy Warhol figure of that time. I mean, Brett showing up at your party then gave it the bad housekeeping seal of approval. It was a fresh approval rather than an establishment approval. Brett's aesthetic, or maybe it's Brett's philosophy, is so like Andy Warhol's. Artist as celebrity, celebrity as performance artist. Brad. Andy was the inventor of the 80s. So the interest in fame and celebrity and American popular culture all made sense. And he was the deity of it all, I guess. And I suspect that Andy is the model for Brett in another way as well. The gay thing, as Brett terms it, and how to handle it. Here's how you handle it. You do as Andy did and play it cool. Brett certainly won't imitate the homosexual or bisexual men of a generation before and fake heterosexuality. Here's Brett telling me about going to parties thrown by Joan Didion and John Gregory Dunn back from L.A. in the late 80s and living on the Upper East Side. I would walk into their apartment and, you know, Joan would hand me a drink and she would just stand there. Terrifying. It was always John who was talking. What was he like with you? Uh, Well, looking back, I mean, you know, I often wonder why there were so many young, good-looking guys who were invited to John's house, whether it was my boyfriend, who at the time, who I think John had a real thing for. And I always assumed he was gay. I never did not assume he wasn't, but it was just one of those things with that whole crowd, whether it was Dominic Dunn or Tony Richardson or John Dunn. I mean, it was just gay man, wife. But he was the one who was friendly and talked. The men that Brett just listed, Dominic Dunn, Tony Richardson, both of whom would, in their later years, acknowledge that they were bisexual, John Gregory Dunn, who never acknowledged that he was bisexual and might not have been, came of age in the 40s and 50s, as did Brett's former girlfriend's father, John Foreman, part of that same social circle. Living an out bisexual or gay life simply wasn't an option. I should note, Brett asked Griffin Dunn, when Griffin was on his podcast, if Griffin ever wondered whether his uncle, John Gregory Dunn, was gay. Griffin's response, quote, that never occurred to me, ever. Though Brett is considerably younger, living an out bisexual or gay life is still not really an option. Pigeon O'Brien. Being gay in the 80s, frankly, was probably something that people at page six and in the gossip columns would bargain with you to share with your fans or not. I mean, that was a bad thing in the, you know, it was a, it was a, a gossip item. If this person's gay, oh my God, he's a gay. It was not accepted for people in the public spotlight at all. There would be rumors that like, oh my God, Richard Simmons is gay. Like <laughs> that's, that's the kind of world it was. Pigeon's right. The eighties is a closeted decade. Elton John is officially bisexual until 1988, Boy George until 1995. People do come out. Ian McKellen, Rupert Everett, Barney Frank, Martina Navratilova are some of the bigger names. But it's coming out, a public declaration. And once you make it, you're expected, in a way, to be professionally homosexual. 
meaning gay person, capital G, capital P, is your identity, how you're defined. Like Andy before him, Brett refuses to be a gay person, capital G, capital P, while at the same time refusing to pretend to be a straight person. Instead, he shrugs, lets his eyes go sleepy whenever the issue arises. And if the question is put to him directly, he responds obliquely, telling one interviewer that his sexuality is, quote, indeterminate. In 2012, in a piece written for the Daily Beast, he'll refer to himself as, quote, a gay man. Not an announcement or a big thing, just a casual aside. But then, also in 2012, he'll tweet, quote, somewhere in the late 1980s, I almost found myself in a coked-up threesome with Riel Hunter in my condo on 13th Street in New York. Yes, the Riel Hunter mentioned earlier, Jay McInerney's ex, John Edwards' love child's baby mama. And Molly Ringwald will tweet back, quote, I think I know who the third was, dot, dot, dot. So you can never be sure with Brett. Even when he pins himself down, he somehow manages to wriggle free. Brad Gooch, also gay, discusses with me the radical nature of Brett's low-key approach. He has a very cool attitude also then to the whole sexuality thing. That's what really seems modern. I mean, the post-label thing. Which I think he was early on. Well, he was like insanely, annoyingly early. Yet understated can be misconstrued as unstated. Jay McInerney, for example, feels that Brett's hiding his orientation. Footnote number two. Jay used the term beard twice in our conversation. I always think of it as a specifically homosexual term, like a woman beards for a gay man, i.e. pretends to be the gay man's wife or girlfriend. Jay flipped it, though. Brett, he said, was bearding for him. First when he was married to Mary McInerney, but seeing model Marla Hansen on the sly, Brett would act like he was Marla's date. And then again when he was with Marla Hansen, but seeing Princess Leia on the sly, Brett would act like he was Princess Leia's date. Jay. There are certain things he remembers that I had forgotten. He acted as a beard for me with both Marla Hansen when I was married and also with Carrie Fisher when I was subsequently with Marla. But back to Jay and his sense that Brett was being deceptive. I finally took him to task for it. And I said, wait, you, you, you think I'm stupid? This is becoming a little ridiculous. Jim was around for a long yeah. time before he was acknowledged as a boyfriend. Brett's reaction. Jay is always so surprised that I never talked to him about my gayness, even though I had boyfriends and I certainly wasn't pretending to be straight. And so when Jim came into the picture and it became apparent that we were going to be living together, Jay noticed and it was kind of like, why didn't you ever tell me? It's sort of like, why would I? You know, it was not something that I, you know, that I identified with or defined myself by. Uh, and so I don't, I, I know Jay had brought this up a lot and felt, oh, uh, where's my, um, I thought you were a closer friend or something. And it was like, what are you talking about? I, you know, Jay, Jim's here now. And, you know, so that, I think Jay overplayed that in a very kind of heterosexual way. This is a rare instance of Brett sounding irritated, like something's got to him. Is that because Jay's getting his attitude towards his sexuality wrong? Or is it because Jay's getting him wrong, period? Certainly as writers, Jay and Brett are nothing alike. Grouping them together was always a mistake. 
Bright Lights Big City and Lesson Zero are both centered on young people who live the nightlife. But that's pretty much all they have in common. Take the Bolivian marching powder out of Bright Lights, the high-end fashion models with low moral fiber, and what you've got is a story about a boy who's lost his way because he misses his dead mom. By the novel's final scene, he's done with illegal narcotics and loose companions and has found himself a nice girl, a philosophy major at Princeton. In brief, it's a classic buildings roman. Less Than Zero, on the other hand, is estranged from beginning to end, with a main character who can't connect because he occupies a world in which connection isn't possible and who, in the course of the narrative, experiences no growth or change, ekes out not a single lousy epiphany. Lesson Zero's alienation is absolute, it's modernity indelible. Brett. They're polar opposite books in so many ways, in terms of approach, in terms of style, in terms of mood, and what he aspired to be and what I aspired to be. What Jay aspired to, I did not. And I, it just wasn't in my DNA. And I do think a lot of it comes back to coming of the age in that numbness, this minimalistic idea of expression, certainly shrouded in the kind of ambivalent sexuality that's not quite all the way gay, but not straight either. All of that is anathema to Jay. He was very heterosexual, very much a traditionalist. What Jay aspired to be, Brett doesn't say, but he doesn't have to because Jay said it to me. When Jay came to New York in the late 1970s, he idolized the big male American writers, William Styron, Robert Stone, and in particular, Norman Mailer. Jay. Yeah, these, these were all hard-drinking, macho guys. That was the old guard. That was the world that we sort of crashed. But Mailer, I was fascinated by... Yet the big male American writer has, in recent years, been thrown into discredit, as Brett is well aware. Mailer was very much a 20th century white male American writer who, you know, reveled in his masculinity and saw no problems with that, was just a very white male thing. And now it seems that that is being dismantled in a way. And also the notion of the 20th century American writer is diminishing. And I don't know if there's anyone from that period who is also not diminishing. I believe that's true with John Updike, everyone from William Styron to Will to Roth to Tom Wolfe. You know, it's just happening. That Brett is a gay man who is not strictly gay is instead ambiguous. And that as a writer, he is screeny in Brad Gooch's memorable phrase. His books, also movies and TV shows and music videos, is what makes his work seem so undated. This in spite of the obsessive references to contemporary phenomena in it, to bands, to designers, to clubs. Which is why, or part of why, what happened to Updike, Styron, Roth, Wolf, Mailer, et al., the diminishment, isn't happening to him. He's still around, even if people wish he weren't is still the writer people love to hate. I'm going to explain the other part of why he hasn't been diminished in a moment. But first, Brett's boyfriend, Jim, whose name has now been dropped by both Brett and Jay. Who is he? Brett. My gay friends are going, you got the prince. So good looking. He's got a ton of money. And, you know, he's not gay. I mean, he doesn't seem like he's gay. That was Jim. 
Jim, a lawyer from Virginia, Princeton-educated, politically connected, works at Millbank Tweed. Jim's best friend, Bill, who also works at Millbank Tweed, says this to me over email. Quote, Jim was a high-end Wall Street lawyer out of central casting, and with his Southern Reserve and impeccable manners, he fit right in at Millbank, a white-shoe downtown law firm with impressive long-term clients like Chase Manhattan Bank and the Rockefeller family. I am absolutely certain that he and some of our colleagues there inspired certain characters and incidents in American Psycho. Speaking of which, it's at the very tail end of the decade, December 1989, that Brett finishes the novel. Jay. One thing I do remember, though, was when he was writing the American Psycho at one point, going over and prying him out of his apartment and dragging him out to dinner at Raoul's. He left all the murderous scenes till the end. There just came a point where he was completely out of his mind. I'm Shimon Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. All right, listeners, American Psycho. Let's roll up our sleeves, get into it. American Psycho is published by Knopf in 1991, but only after its drop by its first publisher, Simon & Schuster, a month before its scheduled shipping date. It's excerpted in Time Magazine, a chapter in which a woman is skinned alive. It's excerpted in Spy Magazine, a passage in which oral copulation is performed on a decapitated head is boycotted by Tammy Bruce and the National Organization of Women, Bruce starting a hotline whereby callers can dial in and have lurid scenes read aloud to them, and is pre-reviewed by the New York Times under the headline, Snuff This Book. In short, it's a genuine scandal. Is all this a massive overreaction? Yes, in my opinion. But also, no. American Psycho is the fulfillment of the promise Brett made to David Lipsky his sophomore year, the one you heard about in episode eight, to jog your memory. He said, there is one thing that hasn't been done yet, and that's like just sensationalism, like like giving the reader sensations that they don't know they want and they can't have access to. And that's the kind of thing that I'm going to try to do. American Psycho is also the result of two wires nobody would ever think to cross, getting crossed by Brett. The first wire, the Freudian case study that is his father. 
the second, the cultural forces underlying his era. And so the spark is struck. There are those that take the position that American Psycho is satire, treated as a kind of litmus test. If you're cool, you get the joke. If you're uncool, you miss the joke, are the joke, recoil. To the satire people, I say, spare me. Just spare me, okay? The book might have its satirical elements. For instance, Patrick Bateman, in his eagerness to fit in, be part of the crowd and the conversation, turns himself into a Talmudic scholar of the top 40. The case he makes for the Genesis album Invisible Touch as philosophically profound, quote, an epic meditation on intangibility, is pure absurdist comedy. The book, though, at its core, is not satirical. The book, at its core, is psychotic, in as advanced a stage of derangement as its protagonist. Here's the kicker. I can barely stand to read American Psycho, yet I'm sure it's great. After all, the psycho and American in question is Patrick Bateman, a character, same as Jay Gatsby, same as Lolita, with the name invoked by people who've never heard of the book the character came from, never mind the book's author. A character that's taken on a life of its own, slipped off the printed page and into the popular imagination. Patrick Bateman is the other reason, and the more powerful reason, that Brett cannot be diminished. Patrick Bateman is immortal, and therefore Brett Easton Ellis is too. That Patrick Bateman is a potent and abiding symbol is beyond dispute. The question is, what does he symbolize? American Psycho is about the 80s, centering on that quintessentially 80s figure, the yuppie. Patrick Bateman, an avid materialist, a rabid consumer, a striver and go-getter and believer in the system, is yuppiedom incarnate. If it isn't brand name, he isn't interested. His college, Harvard. His place of work, Wall Street. His Bibles, Sagat and GQ. A conformist down to his A to Stony crocodile loafer encased toes, he's forsaken his individuality in order to become what the culture tells him he should be, to like what the culture tells him he should like. In fact, so perfectly according to type does he behave that he's forever being mistaken for other young, upwardly mobile, professional males, as though he and his peers are interchangeable. If Patrick Bateman is a good boy in public, however, in private, it's an altogether different story. There, he's the baddest bad boy imaginable. Amoral and appetitive, a righteously violent rapist, torturer, killer, butcher. You can interpret his blood-soaked rampages in two ways. One, as consistent with his yuppie identity, murder being materialism and consumerism taken to the outer limit since murdering a person means turning that person into a material object and then consuming the object. Two, as him rebelling against his yuppie identity, of refusing to conform, of asserting his will, his needs, his tastes, by devising ever more inventive ways to maim and mutilate his fellow humans. Artist as homicidal maniac. He's simultaneously our brightest and most affirmative social self, young, rich, handsome, purged of all excess flesh and unseemly emotion, and our darkest and most secret id. Scary, exciting, damned, free, ecstatically, orgiastically irrational. And he continues to resonate because as oppressive as society felt three decades ago, it's nothing compared to how society feels now. Social media insisting that we all speak a certain way, act a certain way, 
think a certain way, or it will publicly shame us, make us wish we were never born. Which is why Patrick Bateman embodies our time as authoritatively as he does his own. And then there's our 45th president. Donald Trump's name appears in American Psycho some 30 times. When, in the late 80s, Brett chose Trump as Patrick Bateman's hero and guiding spirit, the man Patrick is always looking for and never quite manages to find, it was a lucky guess. Number two on Patrick Bateman's to-do list, secure an invitation to the Trump Christmas party. Number four on Patrick Bateman's to-do list, saw off a girl's head and FedEx it to a rival at Solomon Brothers. Brett obviously had no clue what a wind history would put at his back. Unless he did. Unless his faculty of guessing right isn't a product of superior luck, so much as superior intuition. That antenna of his, picking up on Trump, yes, but also on Trump's glandular force, on Trump's gluttony for money, for power, for chaos, for destruction. The roaring and adoring response Trump excites in the breast of Patrick Bateman is a foreshadowing of the roaring and adoring response Trump will excite in the breasts of millions of MAGA supporters. Really, to read American Psycho in the Trump era, which I'm sorry to say we are still in even if Biden now occupies the Oval Office, is an uncanny experience. It's as though Brett wrote it with one eye on the world around him, the other on a crystal ball. But I'm straying far beyond the boundaries of Bennington's campus, far beyond the boundaries of this podcast too. Let's go back to 1991, the year American Psycho is published, and the year another book is bought for publication. In The Rules of Attraction, Brett makes an allusion to the novel that his friend and former classmate, Donna Tartt, has been working on since her Bennington days. A minor rules character, Stuart, muses, quote, but who doesn't go to the dress-to-get-screwed party, besides that weird classics group, and they're probably roaming the countryside, sacrificing farmers and performing pagan rituals. Brett. I mentioned them in the rules of attraction because it was like kind of funny. And also because I was reading, I was reading the secret history all those years. Donna was always giving me chapters of it. And I thought, well, it wouldn't be funny if that ever got published and there's a reference to it in an Easter egg. And then in 1991, Donna gives him the last chapter. Then it came time where she said, what should I do with it? And I said, I'm going to give it to Binky. Next time on Once Upon a Time at Bennington College. I got the galleys and uh, and I read it up to Bunny's death. And then my ADD kicked in. I didn't care anymore. And I remember telling my mother, oh, I've been I've been caricatured in a book and a novel. And uh, and I get killed. My character gets killed. And my mother said, oh, oh, no, 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 no one would kill you in person or even in literary form, no. And then she read the book and she said, oh, yeah, that's you, all right. This has been a presentation and production of C13 Originals, a Cadence 13 studio. Once Upon a Time at Bennington College is executive produced by me and Chris Corcoran, created and written by me, directed by Zach Levitt, edited by Perry Kroll, Script edited by Bruce Handy. Production support and additional editing by Ian Mont. Mixed and mastered by Bill Schultz. Production coordination by Terrence Malangone. Studio coordination by Sean Cherry. Artwork and design by Kurt Courtney. 
Marketing by Brian Swarth, Josefina Francis, Moira Curran, and Melissa Wester. The original music is by Joel Goodman. Cadence 13 is an Odyssey company. It's Sophia Franklin, and if you don't already know, listen up. My mini-series is live now each and every Monday, and the only person missing is you. We're dating, we're dumping, we're learning, and we're tapping into all the feels that originally brought us together. Listen and follow Sophia with an F on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.